Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Monty Judah with Lionel Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our program, Revealing the Book of Revelation. Now, we're already into the study a little bit, but it was brought to my attention, and I apologize for this, that when I was going through chapter 2 and explaining about the seven letters to the churches, that I inadvertently skipped one of them. So before we start into talking about the seven trumpets, I'd like to go back very briefly to chapter 2 and let's cover uh, the teaching that concerns the letter to the church of Thyatira. So turning back to, again, Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 18, that's where that letter will begin. And let me cover that and make sure we have a complete teaching of all the seven letters. And then we'll proceed forward at that point. And again, I apologize for it not quite being in order, but I think it's important for you to hear all of the teaching of the letters. Uh, reading from verse 18, chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church of Tyre, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of them according to their deeds. Now, before I go any further with it, let's take note of some of the things he said. Again, here we have the pattern of the letter. The first statement is the Messiah introduced himself. He, he shares a characteristic about himself. Uh, in each one of these, he introduces himself and reminds us of who he is. And in this particular one, uh, he describes himself as having eyes of a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. Later on, at the end of Revelation, that's the picture. 
of the uh, the Messiah coming uh, to render judgment to the world. So the Messiah is now in the appearance of the Messiah that judges the whole world, not in the appearance of the Messiah that came to do the work of redemption, not as the humble servant uh, or any of the other characteristics. He's definitely showing um, and introducing himself here to this group that there uh, that he's prepared to judge and render judgment. And in fact, as you went through, he has a major complaint uh, against this group of believers. And, and, and here you have this contrast. Hey, I know your faith. I know your service. I know your perseverance. Those are all good things. But you're doing something that's almost countermandering all of it. And he goes on to describe that, he, that they are following the teaching of Jezebel. Well, let's go back in a little biblical history. Who in the world is Jezebel? Well, those were in the days of Elijah the prophet. And the king married this woman, Jezebel, and she proceeded to develop the worship of Baal in the land of Israel. And to the extent, so powerfully to the extent, that if you were a believer uh, of the God of Israel, you had to basically be pretty quiet about it. And Elijah was in the midst of that, and of course God was calling Elijah to to um, stand up against that, if you remember the basic story of Elijah, why um, he um, uh, was very discouraged by what had taken place. He went down to Mount Sinai. He's hiding in the cave, the same one that Moses was at. The Lord tells him, what are you doing here? Get back, go back to the land. He goes back, and he goes back to a high mountain there in the north, and uh, he has them has the prophets of Baal build an altar, and then he he has an altar built, and they calls down fire, and they couldn't get fire to come down, and Elijah did get fire to come down, and 400 prophets of Baal were slain by the by the children of Israel in that day, and uh, this uh, the thing that really put the whole crunch together is Jezebel, uh, as the wife, she wanted a particular vineyard that was owned by an Israelite. And the Israelite refused to sell it, and so she ordered the king to kill him and steal it. And that was kind of the the breaking point of that she was always enforcing her will on other people, and, and Elijah stood up to her in, in the course of that. But there's a whole lot more background about Jezebel, how she used to operate and, and what she used to do. And one of the things that is kind of common knowledge amongst all of us who are believers. Um, and I, when I was in, in the Baptist churches and, and other churches I'm, a, I'm familiar with, every once in a while you'll get this thing, the spirit of a Jezebel. You know, I, I don't know if in your church experience you ever heard it, but we as believers, we view somebody who is uh, generally of a female gender, and generally is really using the, her female position, uh, either as the wife of a leader or and, and gossiping and, and being circulating in a group of ladies that will sow discord and will sow rebellion uh, within, you know, where we can't get along and, and so forth. We call it the spirit of Jezebel. Jezebel was doing that to the whole nation, and that's what it's referring to. And what he says is, is that you are listening to and you're tolerating that stuff. 
Now, what is he really saying? That you're tolerating people who are constantly chipping away, sowing rebellion in the midst of your congregation. And that this is, and by the way, sowing discord among brethren uh, in the scriptures referred to as an absolute abomination to the Lord. I mean, it is. I mean, he really thinks it's distasteful. And for those of you who have ever been part of a church experience where there's been a split in the church and you were involved in the midst of that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is not a happy time. For the brethren, there's breaches of friendships and relationships. It can tear families apart. The exact opposite of what the Lord is trying to do with his flock. It is the scattering of his flock. It's, it's, they're doing the work of the devil. That's exactly what the devil would love to have done uh, to, to the assemblies and to the congregations. And here is this effort where people actually participate in this. Uh, and do it. And so he says very sternly, in light he appears to be in judgment, he pronounces a judgment on this. And let me go back and show you this. He said, verse 20, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and, and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The... Um, Eating things sacrificed to idols, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 8, is anything that compromises your faith. You don't actually have to eat a meal to qualify for what is being stated here. Um, eating sacrifices to idols is anything that you do to participate with any group of people or whatever that compromises your faith that you no longer have integrity in your faith. Somebody could come up and make accusation against you for you being a hypocrite. So it's called, the whole concept of getting into that problem is called eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, it's, a, it's a mixing, it, it destroys your faith, and it certainly compromises your testimony. And this is what is going on, and that's what's being caused to happen. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her morality. One of the things about God's judgment, one of the things we exercise in judgment, if I don't, if you do something that's inappropriate, something I disagree with, but I don't perceive within you the intent that you had to do that. I see that you made a mistake. Uh, you just don't understand. You, you're ignorant. Of, of this, what this is about, and and I don't see intent in it. You know what? The first thing I do is I offer mercy. Look, I, I wish you wouldn't do that. Don't do that again. Uh, by the way, I'm going to extend mercy. In no wise would I come and offer to judge or cause a breach with the brother. I would be trying to correct the situation. However, if we detect, if you sense there was intent there it was full intention to do this then that's a different matter that's not one that calls for mercy that's one that calls for justice and that's true with the lord as well as with us all sin originates from the heart in other words it originates with you intended to sin and you did it that's the reason why the lord's going to judge that sin but if you make a mistake 
there's a whole nother understanding about it. In fact, in the law, in the sacrificial system, there, the guilt sacrifice is not for willful intentional sin. That is for leaders who have mistakenly done something. They, they, they did something out of ignorance. They didn't understand. They, they didn't have enough information on it. But they made a mistake, and they recognized they made a mistake, and so they take and offer a guilt offering. They get reconciled to the Lord with regard to it. It's completely different from sins that you're fully intentioned. In fact, I can summarize the whole law and sacrificial system to tell you all of the sacrifices are primarily just um, they're gifts to the Lord for celebration and memorialization, uh, for festive, uh, for festivities and things like that, all the feasts of the Lord. And then some of the others that you hear about sin offering or guilt offering and so forth, those are all for unintentional sins. The Lord says you can come and be reconciled, and this is what we'll do. How we'll, And that's the same thing as if you made a mistake, you didn't intend to do it. Guess what you do? You go and apologize. That's what a good man would do. He would apologize. I didn't understand. I'm sorry that that came out that way. And we offer forgiveness to him because there was no intent. We extend mercy to them and forgiveness. And so the whole concept of that, what we do commonly, that was the whole sacrificial system. That's what it was teaching. And saying, I, God, will do the same thing with you. What did God say specifically about intentional sin? Willful, defiant, intentional sin. Death. That's what the law said. So when we, when the, the, the curse of the law for intentional sin is that you die. If you sin against God intentionally, willfully, and so forth, um, you're not going to take a lamb there and end the problem. You're not going to go, there's no sacrifice that covers that, except one. That would be the sacrifice that God himself brings, called the Lamb of God sacrifice. That one covers willful, defiant, deadly sin against God and done by us. That's why we have forgiveness of our sins is because of the sacrifice that's been brought by God for us. That is, if we accept that sacrifice, if we accept that exchange, that substitution for our sins, then the Lord extends to us forgiveness, delivers us out of this problem that we're dealing with, and we're saved. And we're not subject to the penalty of death that the law specified. We've been passed from death to life, just like what the Passover teaches us. So he's dealing with here, and he says she, they're doing this intentionally. So here's what the punishment is from God to some believers in the end times. Here's what he says. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Now, in the church of Philadelphia, we're going to hear where the Lord gives a promise to them that says he will keep them from tribulation. This one says... I will throw you into the great tribulation. 
So this is another evidence that these letters are not written to the the, the believers through the ages um, from the time of the resurrection up to the present time. These are messages to the final generation. Because if he said, I was going to throw you into tribulation, make you sick, and be a part of the great tribulation, that happens at the end of the age. So if you're not at the end of the age, that was an idle threat. That wasn't much of a threat at all. The believers that uh, used to live here 200 years ago or 50 years ago, and they read this, and they said, oh, my, I, you know, I, I could get really in trouble. This threat didn't mean anything. It does mean something today. Therefore, this message is for today. And in our assemblies, let me just say to you, as, as having been a pastor, a teacher, and helping to establish congregations and so forth, we are all sons and daughters of the ancients, I say. And if you look back at the past behavior of the ancients, on one moment, we love the Lord, we turn to the Lord, we repent, everything's great, and the very next moment we turn around and we turn away from the Lord and we go sin and we get in trouble with the Lord and we choose the curses instead of the blessings and then we vacillate back and forth trying to figure out if I'm going to obey the Lord and not obey the Lord, whether I'm walking with the Lord or not walking with the Lord. And in the course of many men's lives, they go back and forth, back and forth and back and forth over the, if you hear the whole testimony of their life. Um, the, the vacillation begins to slow down the, the older you get, but we've all done it. We've all had those days in our past, and, and it's part of it has to do with it's the nature of us being human beings and separated from God, and that we live in the world that we do with temptation and lust and all the other things going on, and we're trying to get past that and get into the path and walk in the light with the Lord and, and avoid the darkness. So here's a congregation, and they got both of them going on at the same time. And in the midst of that, everything's being stirred up, and they're listening to things that are causing people to be in discord with one another and rebellion, compromising their faith. And the Lord says, enough. He says that they will suffer pestilence. Back um, earlier, when we were looking at the seals, uh, there were four judgments that were specifically mentioned, and I pointed out to you that Ezekiel the prophet in chapter 14 makes reference to them, and they were judgment that is by the sword, judgment that is um, by wild beasts, judgment that comes from famine, but then there was another judgment called pestilence or disease, that those are um, these severe judgments. Uh, if you do an analysis on those judgments, what is the highest likelihood that you will get killed by it? Pestilence far outweighs all the others. In fact, you could almost make an argument that if you took the sword and, and famine and, and wild beasts and put them all together, pestilence will still kill more. Historically, I don't know if you know this, but... <clears throat> You know, back in World War One, boy, a lot of people got killed. Millions of people got killed. In fact, I, I think one number that I've seen is like 13 million people were killed in World War One worldwide. In 1922, uh, right after World War One, 
there was a worldwide influenza epidemic that hit, and only 22 million people were killed. Almost twice as many as all of World War I in one year were killed. Pestilence disease is far more deadly. So here he is speaking a judgment he's going to put on these people. He says, I'm going to put you in a bed of sickness, throw you in the great tribulation, and, and you are going to suffer pestilence. I, I'm trying to convey to you that when I read this, that is a very severe punishment. There is, I mean, because when you get sick, like that we're talking about here, no mercy. No mercy, just justice, just you're going to pay. Now, with that said, let us look a little bit further as to what else he has to say in the midst of that as well. <clears throat> Verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts to see what your intent is, he's saying, what your thoughts are. More than what your actions are. What are you really thinking and what are you intending to do? And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Measure for measure. So if your intent was not to do something, but you agreed into thought about something with some others, you'll get that measure of judgment. If your intent was the same thing and your thoughts were the same thing and you did the same thing, you will get that measure of justice. If you really didn't have the thought to do it, you really didn't have the intent to do it, but you got caught up, then you'll get that measure of justice. God is just in his equal weights and measures when it comes to exercising justice. And by the way, that is of great um, Solace to us. Um, even though there's a whole group of brethren that are associated with this one church, <clears throat> and even though they've done some bad things, individually, though, the Lord is wise enough to go in and say, yeah, but he's not quite like what the others are. I'm going to separate him out. He won't get the same justice. But these that are all doing it and their all hearts and minds are, the, are together on doing this, they will definitely get judged. That these others that didn't have their hearts and minds, they may have gotten caught up in it, that my justice to them will be measured out. It will be according to the, their real deed. That's a just God. That is a just God. That's what a father would do if he had several of his children, you know, got in trouble. All three of the kids went off and did some misdeed. I'm telling you right now, the father's going to go sort out, well, who was the leader of this pack? Who was the one that inspired this? Who's the one that started this? And who are the ones that are just the followers? And he renders a judgment that, that upon his children, and many times it'll be a personalized judgment based on his discernment of what was really taking place. The Lord, like a father, is going to do the same thing with regard to this. I find, I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. Because there's a lot of times I'll make a mistake, and I never intended to do that. Now, I have to make amends. I have to correct that. But thank goodness, you know, the Lord is not going to judge me for that. For example, here I am teaching this little segment, and I missed it. 
Okay? You know, I really feel real bad about doing that. But you know what? I know the Lord isn't going to judge me severely about this. He knows my heart, my mind. I didn't mean to do that. But we'll go back. We'll correct it. And everything's going to be fine. I'll be reconciled to the Lord. You'll have the teaching. Everything's going to be fine as we go forward. And this, this understanding is offered to all brethren. Every one of you can, can, this is the relationship that we have with the Lord. So it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't matter how goofy you are and how many mistakes you make. There's always a way to be reconciled and everything will be taken care of just fine uh, with the Lord. All right. So as we're coming to the conclusion of that, let me take you to verse, um, by the way, there's a great parallel verse in Psalm 62, verse 12, that restates this, that God judges you on, um, based on uh, you specifically. What have you done? He renders judgment to you um, based on what you did. Uh, and it's not just blanket judgment uh, for it. If God had blanket judgment, uh, the whole world would already be dead, gone, and we'd, we wouldn't be around anymore. All right, so now in verse 24 it says, But I say to you, the rest who are at Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, you who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. I have no more complaint against you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Again, a reference to him coming soon, and he's encouraging you in your lifetime, that what you're doing in the faith, hold on to it, I'll be coming in your lifetime. So hold fast. If he, if he wasn't planning on coming in their lifetime of the people that he's talking to, then again, that's, that's a false uh, uh, motivation. You know, if I say to um, I say to a group of people, "Hey, you guys wait there uh, and wait for me," and then I decide, "Well, I I ain't showing up at that time. I'd forget them." I mean, what would you think of me if I told you to wait for me and then I never showed up? Well, that would be an offense. But if I said, "Wait for me," and then I showed up, you can expect me to show up. That's essentially what the Messiah just said to the group of people he's talking to. So I believe this message is to end-time saints. I don't believe the Messiah is making some sort of false statement here. He's not making idle comment. He's not making false uh, challenges as to what the punishment will be. He is being very precise and very specific. And again, the book is being written to the bondservants that will see these things shortly take place. First book, first verse in this book. He is following through with what he said from the very first verse. All right, so he is going to give a quote here, verse 26. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps, uh, who keeps my deeds until the end, we're talking about a tribulation saint now, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule with rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have also received authority from my father. <clears throat> Let me give you another version of what he said here. He said, you will rule and reign with me in the kingdom. 
that's essentially what he said. Because this description is the authority of the Messiah to rule. And he says, I will give you that same authority. You will have the same authority as I have to rule and reign in the messianic kingdom. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly how all of this is going to work. In other words, I'm not quite sure what all of the features and factors of the messianic kingdom are. But I, I do know this. I do know we'll be there. We will have new bodies. We'll be immortal. The earth will still be here, but there will be some new things on the earth. Um, there's going to be some kind of cataclysmic restructuring of the earth uh, for us to live. We'll be rebuilding the earth. We will live with the Lord, and there will be no end to the increase. There will be an ever-increasing number of us uh, in the kingdom with him. Now, all the details, how all that's going to work, it's a little hard for us to figure out because he's only given us hints of what things will be. And one of those things he said is that we're going to rule and reign with the Messiah. Now, a lot of people have got great confusion. Well, who do we rule and reign over? Because they think, well, we reign over somebody. Um, you know, I have a theory, and by the way, this is speculation, and I freely admit it. I have a theory that the people that get resurrected and get to go into the kingdom, there may be a rather extensive group of people that were unborn babies, children that died and never had an opportunity to hear about the Lord or choose the Lord. They didn't reject the Lord at all. And that God is merciful to them and those living souls, and he brings them forward into the kingdom. And they have an opportunity to get to know him and make a decision for him. And maybe that's the reason why at the end of the Messianic kingdom, Satan is released and he gets one more time to tempt the nations. Maybe they have to be proven out. I know for us, he has said to us, because we're walking with the Lord, there is no second death for us. When we go into immortality, that's it. We're done. We're in for eternity with him. But maybe there's some others. They still have to go through a test. If we have no second death, um, and there's a whole bunch of people who are going to be there that have never come to know the Lord and never rejected the Lord, but the, he brings them there to live and to learn about him, guess what we'll be doing? We will be with the Messiah teaching those people and, and guiding those people, you know, as they mature and so forth. And then think of all the new babies and new persons that are going to be born in the kingdom. And when it says there's no end to the increase, he is talking about the birth rate is going to go up dramatically. I can tell you one of the factors that will cause that. God is going to remove the curse of women bearing children in travail. There won't be any more travail for bearing children. Now, I don't know about you, but I can see... A, a, a family unit, a, a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, in the kingdom, let's have a child. And you have a child, and it's pure joy. Pure joy. And there's no travail whatsoever. And you have the kid, and you go, wow, that was fun. Let's do that again. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit facetious. I don't really know what will take place, but I knew what the statement is. There will be no end to the increase. And I do know that where we're going to be at in the kingdom, it's going to be very good.
And so that's essentially what the Messiah, he's talking about that future reward in the kingdom. I will grant you authority. You will rule and reign with me in the kingdom. So hang on. Be faithful till the end. Because the next step after the end is we're going into the kingdom. Um, And he's exhorting them to be overcomers of the days that they're in. All right, so that covers uh, Thyatira. Again, I believe I've covered all the other churches for it. So let's fast forward now to where we're at in our study, and let's go to um, chapter 8. We have completed the teaching of the seven seals. And in chapter 8, the beginning, it's telling us about the seventh seal, and we've already talked about that. And the seventh seal is completed, and now we're ready for the seven trumpets. So uh, verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6, it says, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And a third angel sounded, And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the waters because they were made bitter. Verse 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night is in the same way. Now, before we go any further with uh, what we have here, these first four trumpets, is as I mentioned to you when we went through the seals, the first four seals are like a cluster of judgments. It was these horse, the riders on the horse, and we had four colored horses, and it's like... The way I see this taking place, these things could like cascade and happen quickly together to where that you'd have the whole effect of those taking place. And it's called a cluster of judgments. Now, the other seals are separate, distinct from the first four. Well, that's what we're going to discover here about the trumpets. The first four trumpets are what we call one-third judgments. It affects one-third of the earth in different things, and they're all clustered together. What we will learn about the other trumpets is they're separate, distinct, specific things that are being prophesied. Now, I know when uh, in the past, um, when I used to read this and others that I had heard taught on it, this is all, wow, this is all picturesque. This is all kinds of interesting pictures. If this stuff really happened, it's probably got to be supernatural stuff that's taking place. I mean, mountains being thrown into the sea and hail with fire and all those kinds of things. Well, but as the years have gone on and as I've done more and more study on here, I think these are descriptions that we will actually use 
when the event, whatever it is, happens, we will describe it this way. So, for example, if we have some kind of asteroid strike, or excuse me, if we have some hail with fire on it. By the way, God used that judgment back on the Egyptians, so he knows how to do that. If he uses that on us, one of the distinct things that will hit us about that is this is definitely a judgment from God. This doesn't appear to be naturally forming. But the consequences of that judgment, trees burned up, grass burned up, uh, things like that, those are very understandable, natural things that will be in the judgment. Um, You do know that environmentalism is very close to a religion. Uh, they, they call it Mother Earth. In fact, we have an Earth Day. They worship the Earth. Can you believe that? They worship the created. So it's almost like the first trumpet judgment is, hey, to all of you, my liberal uh, tree-hugging friends, watch this one. He's going to judge the thing they think is a god. He's basically going to be saying, that's not God. I'm God. I'm the one that's in control of that, not that. You need to stop paying attention to what you think about trees and nature, and you need to start paying attention to me, the creator. That's the kind of judgment that fell upon Egypt. Those were the messages that God, so that you might know the Lord. And that's what Moses used to announce, and Aaron used to announce to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. This judgment is going to hit you so that you might know the Lord. Well, the same thing is going to be happening here. There's a lot of people that do not know the Lord. They don't know him as creator. They don't know him as the ultimate judge. They don't know him as one who has given the rules for life. He's the author and finisher of life. They don't see him that way. They don't regard him that way. And they're getting ready to be introduced to God. And he's going to hit them with the things they think are God, the things they admire. There is this natural inclination on the part of men. You know, I was telling you before, we have this natural inclination to go back and forth doing good and not doing good. Well, we also have this other natural inclination that every time we see a beautiful tree, we praise it. Oh, look how gorgeous that tree is. I mean, how many of you have done that before? I certainly have. And that was one of the reasons why the Lord said, I don't want any trees near my temple because you men keep praising trees. There's a whole class of idolatry called asherim in the Hebrew, which are called trees of praise, asherim. Let me think about that for a moment. Um, Let's see, we have this major Christian holiday in December, and one of the key things is we go out and get an evergreen tree, and we drag it into our house, and we heap decor on it, and we praise the heck out of it. How does the Lord feel about that? Well, Jeremiah the prophet has told us that is the work of an idolater. That's an idolater. You know, there's a very good possibility that when this judgment hits, 
God might just be selective and take out a whole bunch of Christmas trees for the world. He might just take out a whole bunch of pine trees. Um, Whatever the case may be, I want you to take note of this other additional thing. This judgment, while it will fall, is a localized judgment. By that I mean this. It's not global. If I live in an area where I don't have a lot of trees and grass, this judgment's not going to mean a whole lot to me. I won't be seeing much of anything. If I live in the desert, for example, I'm not going to see This judgment's not going to mean anything to me. If I live in the forest, well, you know, Katie bar the door, I mean, this, this could get serious. And the same thing is true of the other judgments that come down here. Some of the judgments are on the sea and the coastlands. I live here in Oklahoma, so when it talks about a mountain on fire being thrown in the sea and a third of the sea being destroyed and a third of the ships being destroyed, gee, that sounds bad, but it's certainly not going to affect me very directly. I'm in Oklahoma. So again, it's a localized judgment for the area. But as you go through all of them, there's a growing trend from localized judgments to global judgments, judgments that affect everyone. For example, when he talks about this um, wormwood, this uh, thing that comes, star that comes by and it makes the waters bitter. Let me go ahead and just give you, this is providential fact. We believe, and it is understood, that if we get an asteroid, say a big asteroid, and it comes flying by the earth, and it doesn't actually impact the earth, but it does skip off the atmosphere, that if it enters our atmosphere and then slides past, doesn't actually strike us directly. Scientists tell us that that asteroid flying through the atmosphere will produce hydrocyanatic acid in the atmosphere, that it will put cyanide into the atmosphere. And then the normal cycle of the atmosphere, it will precipitate that down, that will rain down on us, and just like what rain does, it fills up freshwater places, rivers, streams, lakes, uh, that fresh water that we drink, you know, comes from a lot of rain sources and so forth. And here comes this highly, highly poisonous cyanatic acid that's in the rain, and it comes down and it goes into all of our freshwater sources and all the places where we, and it gets into the groundwater and it becomes poison to us. Can you imagine that judgment? Now, again, there's a little bit of a localized judgment to that. Um, the asteroid's not going to cover all the atmosphere of the air. It would just be a part. And then there's the question of how much is that precipitated down into what location. But if it gets precipitated down into a particular country, let's say it's precipitated down into Asia, it could devastate the whole country. And they'd be in deep trouble trying to find clean water and to be otherwise they'll drink it and it makes them sick and they die cyanide you know is the ingredient that when a spy gets caught he wants to crunch on his cyanide cancel so it kills him instantly and he then doesn't have to go through interrogation it's a way of committing suicide because it's so deadly if you it shuts you down real fast and so that that wormwood thing that name wormwood 
is a very dangerous word. It means very bad things. Here's another little coincidence for you. You remember the Russian nuclear reactor that they that ran away and and was became poisonous and everybody had to move away. It's called Chernobyl. You know what Chernobyl means if you translate it over to English? Wormwood. Wormwood. We've already had an incident in the earth to show how devastating that can be. Nobody can live there. You get the radiation is just incredible. You get sick from it. Almost all of the men who went and fought that fire and poured concrete in it to seal that whole thing up, they're all dead. The the cloud, the radioactive cloud drifted over into northern human and Europe. It it made people get sick. Uh, in, in effect, it was stuff in the atmosphere, and it shows you how you could have a judgment in a particular place and how it would spread and how it would have a very adverse impact on people. This is a very severe punishment. This is a very severe judgment. And then he goes to uh, number 12. Fourth, the angel sounded, third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars. We're smitten so that a third of it might be dark and the day might not uh, to be a third of it. Now, what would cause that? Is that a supernatural event, or do we have anything that we know providentially in physical science that could cause that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. All we need is a big old super volcano to go off. You know, something like Yellowstone, which, by the way, is a giant super volcano. And there's other places where there's super volcanoes. And if they go off, they produce so much debris, so much smoke into the air that it will circumnavigate the the globe and darken the skies. And as a result, it would darken the sun, it would darken the moon, it would darken the stars because of this cloud. By the way, if you look at the atmospheric currents, the, the closest thing I can give you is what's called the jet stream. You know there's a jet stream of air, upper air, that circulates around the Earth, only in the northern hemisphere. There's a whole other jet stream that's down below in the southern hemisphere. By the way, there's all different other wind currents that go around the equator. There's three separate air movements in the Earth. So if he's talking about that he's going to darken a third of the earth, he's going to disturb one of those major air movements on the globe. He's going to put something in there in the atmosphere that will darken uh, the atmosphere for that. The um, Several years ago, it used to be called the uh, Space Watch program that NASA had, um, and there was an analysis that was done about what kind of a severe event would be darkening the earth. And it was agreed to that an event that comes in the form of an asteroid striking the earth has the potential to darken all of the earth. But if you're only going to darken a third of the earth, you're probably talking about a volcano, a volcanic eruption. So it may be that the judgment that will be coming is one of these super volcanoes goes off. Or maybe it's a bunch of volcanoes that go off. And oh, by the way, I do I, do, I have to remind you guys that um, at the moment, scientists are closely watching Yellowstone. That they know that there's a movement of the magma is coming closer to the surface of the earth. And oh, by the way, Yellowstone 
is way behind schedule for having its normal cycle of eruptions. And there's parts of Yellowstone that are being closed to the public because the ground is so hot it melts the asphalt road. And the water is extremely hot and it's dangerous to people. Besides gases that are leaking and could be dangerous to you to breathe. And everybody knows that the whole geyser cycle is being altered at Yellowstone. And it's because there's a different thermal action underneath the earth. The, the magma level is coming up. They actually think that a new stovepipe, that's what they call it, when a big upward thing of a magma comes up, and it, it used to kind of come up and then slope over and then go up. And that's, that's the structure of Yellowstone because of what came below. But in recent years, they now think instead of making that curve and continuing over there, that it's now building a new stovepipe to go to the surface here. And so the actual center point of where the eruption could start is moving to the southwest of where Yellowstone is at. And that's where they see the heating effects going in those areas. Yellowstone and then more to the southwest, we're getting more and more activity. Besides all the earthquakes and rumblings that are going on there and so forth, uh, there's very clear evidence. Now, uh, you'll be happy to know that all of the um, physical scientists and the guys, the volcanists and those guys that study volcanoes and so forth, they're all assuring us, nah, nah, don't worry about it. it, it it's... That's what men say. That's just like the guy saying, oh, everything goes on as normal. The Lord's not going to be coming back. You want to believe that? You don't think this is possible? Men have been proven wrong on this so many times that we've lost track of count. It's just that kind of a statement is stupid. That's how foolish it is. Now, here's a judgment being described that, is, that we know there's a very probable providential way of it happening. So the super volcano, let's take, for example, Yellowstone, it goes off. Do you think the world would recognize that this was a judgment from God or that it was the fourth trumpet? I'll tell you who the people are that will know it's the fourth trumpet. The people that read these words and believe these words, they'll know. The others won't repent. They don't get it. Now, despite the very best efforts of God trying to explain, I'm here, I am God, I am, this, this place belongs to me. You people belong to me. Uh, I'm the creator. No, let's ignore the creator. Let's ignore you know, all the things the creator is trying to communicate to us, how he's trying to re reveal things to us. And let's just continue to press on with what we're doing, which is what the world, most of the world is going to be doing during the Great Tribulation. So, again, I want to review with you that these first four trumpet judgments, they're like clustered together. It may be that these events, as they begin to unfold, will pop like that. In other words, it'll hit here, hit here, hit here, hit here, and all of them will be kind of going on at the same time, but distinguishing and understanding will be based on our understanding of this book. Because this book, are you ready, is showing us the things that will be shortly taking place. The message to the end-time believers. So if that hydrocyanatic acid shows up, don't drink the water. 
If the trees are getting burned up, stay away from them. If you're out on the ocean when that other thing happens, don't do that. By the way, let me mention that one again uh, to make sure everybody knows. A fire that's on a mountain that's on fire is thrown in the sea. Did you know that they're expecting that to happen? There's a mountain, there's an island in the Canary Islands. It's off the coast of Africa. This is a giant mountain, but it's got a, a split in the mountain. There's a there's a a rift in the Earth's crust, and it's a it's a focal point for earthquakes. Too moving. But there's a volcano that came up through the split, and has formed this mountain that formed the island, and and has made this great great island. If that volcano goes off, or we have a severe enough earthquake for it, they literally say that half of the mountain will fall into the sea. It'll just slide that big giant landslide and it will fall right into the sea. And by the way, this is not a small island. This is a huge island. And if you have a volcanic eruption, a mountain that is on fire, and all of a sudden it's thrown into the sea, do you have any idea what it would do? It would produce a super tsunami that would go all the way through the Atlantic and the South Atlantic, go all the way into the Caribbean, and it would hit every coastland in the Atlantic perimeter. Did you know we've got some similar things out in the Pacific? I mean, he can take his pick. One of those going off would be unbelievably devastating to the earth and would have a tremendous impact on us in terms of, you remember the tsunami not too long ago? It was an Indonesian earthquake and it traveled across the Indian Ocean and hit all those places over there. We're talking about something even bigger than that. Unbelievable. It's one thing underneath the water if you have movement. It's a whole nother thing if you have something that's outside the water that impacts the water. That produces the even greater thing. Let me, let me demonstrate for you. Go into your house, fill up your bathtub. You know, get some water in there, a good amount of water in there. Now stick your hand in there, and just as fast as you can, wave your hand. You know what it will do? It'll suddenly, you'll have a big wave of water in your bathtub. The, the water will be sloshing around. And, that, and it'll, be, it, it'll disturb the water quite a bit. But if, let's say we have the same bathtub, and my hand is outside the water, and then I decide, well, I'm just going to smack the water, hit it as hard as I can. <clears throat> Look at the comparison of how much of a mess you have and how much of the water comes flying out of the bathtub. If your hand is in the water, you, can, you can't quite get the water out of the bathtub, but you can get it if you've got something outside that hits it. And that's the difference between having an earthquake under the water versus you have a whole mountain being thrown into the sea. The impact is incredible. All right, again, um, these first four trumpets, these are, um, they may be very providential in nature. They sound supernatural, but I think there's actually elements in the earth that will, that will, um, uh, produce this description. I think that's a, when that mountain falls in. I think that's exactly what say. Hey, a mountain was on fire and it got thrown in the sea. And all of a sudden, that's a that's a pretty straightforward discussion about that. Oh, we burned up a third of the trees and a third of the grass. Hey, you know, 
hey, a third of the sky got darkened. That would be the way we would explain it if that happened. And none of that is supernatural. It's all providential. But the reason we would know it was a judgment from God is because this prophecy says so. And because we're paying attention to the events of the great tribulation that he's prophesied, which is leading to the kingdom, and that's what we're hoping for. That's why we're here, so we can understand what's going on. One of the, the greatest keys of being able to get through difficult times is to have some sense of understanding what's going on. It's when you're confused, you have no understanding, that's when it's traumatic to you, and, and it's very difficult to get through. He's given this information to us so that we will become overcomers. We will overcome all of these things. We will be brought out of the great tribulation and we will be going into the kingdom. And I can assure you, when we're in the kingdom, we will be celebrities. There's lots of saints that are going to come up and tell us, what was it like? You were the last generation. Tell us what it was like when God brought judgment to the world and, and you were there to see it and witness his coming. All right, that uh, takes us to the first four trumpets in our next program. We're going to take up from there, and I'm going to introduce and teach you about the last three trumpets, which are called the three woes. Does that incentivize you as to maybe something worse is coming? Yes, something even worse is going to be coming in the trumpets. All right, so that's our lesson for today. Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for sharing your feedback on your enjoyment of the program. Shalom, everyone. Mm -hmm.